Well, happy Mother's Day again. I would like to uh, get us started by turning to Proverbs 31. And it is familiar uh, to most of us. We're going to anchor there today in what is the ideal of what God says a woman's heart and ultimately her mind and all of her energy has been invested in, and that's the life of a son, the life of a daughter. Now, in this particular passage in Proverbs 31, it does happen to be about the life of a man who has a very high position. And I think that that is important because I believe that every woman who obviously has invested in to the life of their child has the greatest expectation. But it doesn't mean that being a king is the biggest and best place to be. In fact, in some ways, Solomon probably doesn't exemplify that well at all. Many things that we could cite. Many, many, many things that we could cite. But this proverb isn't so much as faulting him. It's actually being... Um, it's actually being a proverb that allows us to see the excellency with which a mother is able to influence um, to the full tenure of a man's life, the decisions that he will make, the manner and means by which he follows God. So that's, that's rather extraordinary insofar as that that is the outreach of God is through the inreach of a mother's hand to the heart of a son and daughter, always on her knees, obviously very much in groaning for the best and the outcome of the next generation. So we will be there. I think it's, it's a wonderful word of encouragement to us, and it appears to be consistent with the seasons that, you know, year by year come and go. But the Lord wants us, I think, to be in a deep remembrance, especially at a time right now where um, the sanctity of life is, by cultural standards, considered non-essential, not significant. There are statistics that bear witness of just really how sad that is. But it doesn't usurp nor change the heart of God with regard to the call of motherhood and its importance. All of us who sit presently have the liberty of walking fluidly. However, we can be transported in a variety of different mobilities. We're here as a direct result of a mother that at one given point in time in a day that we celebrate as a birthday chose to go through a pain of labor for hours to render basically the fruit of her womb, which is the life that we represent. That's no small activity by any means. And most of us as fathers would say that what we saw our wives go through um, not only is extraordinary, it is admirable. Words probably are limited in terms of 
what kind of valor is represented in giving birth to the vitality of a son or daughter. One of the things that we are to continually be reminded of, though, in Scripture, and especially we can see it in this dialogue, is this is this tension that exists between both a mother and her son or daughter with regard to the uh, desire that excellence that has been expected continue to remain on a plane that does not disappoint, does not provoke a unnecessary suffering, a demotion. Mothers are always linked, and I think the very best ways of promoting this work of God. And by the way, children, that's what you are. That's who we are. We're a work of God. And it also is, I think, to some degree, um, it's encouraging to me to, to see even in the scriptures where one woman whose plea for a son to be given to her, in fact, lived to have that petition honored by God. And as you know, we've been working in the book of first and second Samuel and that was Hannah I did a teaching on her you know what a heart that's represented a broken heart that was then made as a full heart a bursting heart and then a heart that through devotion and dedication surrendered because of a pledge that she made the very life that was given to her to fill her womb but ultimately to be one that God would use uh, throughout Israel to be the proclaimer of truth. That's the prophet Samuel. The reason that is a very special, I think, story too, is that when Hannah is exulting in the Lord, ultimately comes to the point in which her vow, being satisfied, is delivering Samuel after he has um, been nurtured, um, Weaned is the word that is being used, turned over uh, to the priesthood to be raised in the house of God. She uses the term that I lend him to the Lord. I lend my son to the Lord. And I think that is so awesomely phrased. And I think also for mothers, it's important to realize perhaps those who have struggled in maybe the direction that a son or daughter has taken, that God would free you up, saying, correctively, I loaned that child to you. They're on my docket. They're in my keeping. True. They've disappointed in this or that. Not managed to be at the place that you thought they ought to be and that you raised them to be. But I'm going to free you up of the guilt. I'm going to free you up of the worry. They're mine. They were on loan from me. And now you lend them back to me. Let go of that condemnation and feeling of anxiousness that where they're not at right now is the exclamation point of their life because I'm the one that draws that. I'm the one that puts the line that they're to follow. I'm the one that suspends 
all manner and course of nature and the sciences and all manner of the spirituals to bring that child into my perfect will. When you look at God, not only as creator and author of life, but also a shepherd, he knows how to shepherd his children. And so I just find that to be, for me personally, though it can be a heartbreak and a disappointment when the progress of a child seems to be less than where we would have desired them to be, God says, they're on loan from me. They're actually my child, and I've got my eye on them, and I've got a plan for them. So when the message of the gospel is, you know, obviously delivered, which is one of the most important works and functions of a woman as a mother, you have to know it counts. Every verse, every chapter, every insight, every prayer, every disciplined act of bringing your child to the house of the Lord, it adds up. It has an effect. And God wants to reassure us of that. I want to be able to emphasize as well an important area that if you... Uh, Go back to Ephesians, and we are going to get to 31, but I just want to anchor us in some principles that Paul writes about. In chapter 6 of Ephesians, it opens up this way. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So those who attend right now to this teaching, this is one of the best things that you are able to honor and pay tribute to God in, and that is obedience to a parent. In particular, I would say on this day, to your mom. And for you kids that right now, under their authority, at a time right now still being nurtured, guided, and directed by them, this is pleasing to God. It says in verse 2, Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. A lot of promises get broken in your life. You've probably made promises that you've broken in your life. God says that this is a promise that's the first one he's given concerning the blessings that are for you if you honor your father and your mother. Again, I'm anchoring and emphasizing right now, moms. Dads are included in that because this is speaking of family. And so with this, that it may be well, in verse 3, with you, and you may live long on the earth. And, your, and you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And it's interesting because even in that line, it indicates that there's a, there's a difference in how fathers can tend to raise that's in a contrast to how a woman is, is really wired to raise, that patient, nurturing, very diligent act of putting into a child the truth of God's word and seeing them through from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. And you can actually see that very much engaged in the time in which there has been a birth happen and 
the woman really is on a clock that is very much set on the needs of the child. And the disposition that they have and the energy that they give in what would be called an extraordinary demand on them is amazing. Most guys fail that one pretty quickly. By the particular demands of a child and when they will voice that demand through a wail, a cry, tears. But the mom's heart is knitted and the mom's heart's desires to satisfy and to nurture. It's pretty extraordinary. The other thing to consider right now even is, you know, children are being challenged in this to obey. That signal of obedience becomes evident upon conception. It's pretty amazing, but actually conception from that point forward to delivery, those are the first nine months of school for that child in that womb. Hearing the heartbeat of the mother, and I would not doubt even the heartache of the mother, the particular communiques that happen neurologically from the mind of the mother, the reading of the word, the listening of the word, the singing of songs that I believe most effectively and powerfully are praise and worship songs, poems that are read, storybooks that are read. There's much study right now that indicates that child is cued in. Isn't that cool? For nine months, that little baby is in a schoolhouse that's specially designed for him, for her. And the mother begins her schooling of that child right there, teaching that child in the uh, principles of prayer, the groanings, establishing the appetite, the yearnings, that particular time in which the child in his growth begins to desire more room. And yet the mother accommodates, but also compresses constraints. It's a give and take. Not now, my son. Okay, a little. Compress, compress, compress. And ultimately, the two team up for that day in which we call a delivery. Pretty amazing. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating work that God has done within the womb of the woman. So where does it take us in right now with regard to Proverbs 31? Anchored right now in the fact that obedience has been highlighted. Let's take a look at where a man is who's been put in a position of great authority. And there's banter right now. It either is authentic in terms of a conversation that is going on between a man who is a king or a recollection that is so that is so authentically real to him, he hears her voice. I think both of those are true. Hearing the voice of the mother in the times in which we have been raised, commands and protocols, the means by which we honor God in our lives, we, we hear the voice of our moms. Sometimes in the way in which only we know what that voice means, how our name was said, how the look was delivered, the rewards, 
and awards, the corrections and the punishments, all linked together in a time in which nurturing is in real time to the real experience of making choices. That God's desire is will be honorable to him. So much to be able to see within the life of a mom to the maturing of the son or the daughter. But this this is interesting because this isn't someone who's playing king. The scriptures declare that he is king. And as some of you may know in your studies, it has been presumed by a majority of Jewish scholars that this is actually Solomon with a sentimental name being given to him, one that has a special meaning, which of course it does, belongs to God. Sometimes it's very important to realize that our sons and our daughters who were raised in the ways of the Lord, knowing the choices that they make, will either honor him or ultimately provoke a dishonoring of him. Have a clear understanding that they, by the nurturing of a mom, can say, I belong to the Lord. I belong to God. And this is really something that is, um, I think, poetically meant here. You know, Solomon made errant choices in taking his father's position on the throne. We can read his life and we can see his faults. And certainly the mother could as well. At the time that Solomon took over his throne, David was limited with how much longer he would live. He passed away as a 70-year-old. And Solomon very likely entered in in his very early 20s to take over that throne. But as we see his life unfold right now in, in this recorded passage, the voice of mom, with respect to her son, but you know, Solomon's name personally meant this would be a man of peace. He would have peace with God. So maybe one of the things, moms, that you need to be encouraged in is that those little princes and princesses you're raising right now, first and foremost, in your heart, they belong to God. Secondly, because of your faith and your nurturing, they do have peace with God. Oh, they may seem unpeaceable. They may seem rebellious. But because of what you've done, what you continue to do as you're raising them in the priority that is yours as a mother, you're establishing them in a peace with God. And that's important to know because it's what God will give through his spirit. But there's also in this as well another name that's likened to Lemuel, Solomon. It's Jedediah. 
I think that these are the pet names that mom gave. We had names that we would affectionately bend or say to our kids or sing to them. We were kind of songwriters for our kids and we would make up songs that had meaning, brought a smile to their face. Silly songs, but sentimental. And Jedediah is one of those that the Lord himself would say was special. And you'll understand why it's special just by hearing it. Friend of God. Your children, because of your relationship with God, literally are friends of God. And remember in Romans the other day, we likened the Lord as he is described, one who sticks closer than a brother to those who are what? His. It's pretty awesome when in this verse we get to see these names that historically we know to be true, but this one in particular, Lemuel, you belong to God. Now with that son, hear me. And notice what happens as the verse opens, the address is made, the utterances which his mother taught him. So moms, thank you for teaching your kids. It does stick. It's not easily erased by friendships that are contrary to the friendship that they have with God, by the peace that God has established with them, and by the fact that that child has been dedicated to the Lord and belongs to God. Here are the three questions. What, my son? Now, just inflection alone can change the meaning of that. What, my son? <laughs> That's kind of like, what have you done now? But this is actually more akin to the inquiry. It's interrogative. It's a probing question. It's not necessarily a suspicious one. And it's not necessarily a corrective one. It has in it the deep association of a heart that wants to know, is it beating for God? What, my son? And you can almost see on the other side of that, maybe a furrowed eyebrow, maybe a smirk, maybe a shrug of the shoulders. What? But there seems to be audience here, if not in remembrance, then actuality. And the dialogue is very assertive. It's important to realize that. There is a banter right now that is the mother's effort to challenge the thinking of this man with much authority. What, my son? A secondary question. And what, son of my womb? You're my son. No doubt about that. You're the son of my womb. I'm very acquainted with you. There's little that you can hide from me. You and I traveled together for nine months. 
what is it that I would not know about you? And from the time that you were weaned, you were at my breast, what is there that I would not understand about you? It was through my challenges to you that words began to be formed on your lips, association with things that were curious to you. I'm your teacher. I'm intimately acquainted with you. And I will tell you, my son, as you know well, God is intimately acquainted with you. Your father wrote that in song, in psalms. And then this third question, what? Son of my vows, I've committed you to the Lord. Even before conception, my heart was to be a mom. God has been faithful to me as a mom. My vows are solid. They're unchanging. So no matter who you may be right now, King, God has given you that. Or who you may not be, deposed, God has allowed that. But you are the son of my vows. And I think that brings great relief to a mother who is able then to say, as such, then God will do such. Because he's faithful. So what's going on then in the inquiry right now? Well, we understand that there are about four principles of correction, insight, that are going to be shared right now. In verse 3, the mother talks to this king concerning the way of women. It doesn't mean their way. It means the lending of himself or the persuasion of his mind, the appetites in his flesh to be consumed by a desire for woman. And so in verse 3, do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroy kings. So we've used this before because his father did the same. Deuteronomy 17, 17 was a clear command by God that kings were not to multiply wives or girlfriends to themselves. They were to be monogamous, dedicated to one, only focused on one. And so this question that is being posed right now by this mother indicates that she has an awareness of this being right now, his weakness. If it is, in fact, at the time and tenure of his early authority, it's true. Right from the get-go, Solomon, one who belongs to God, Lemuel, made an alliance. It was with Pharaoh's daughter, is what we're told. It was to have a political alliance, and he did so by falling in love or feigning love to one that would strengthen him. But you know what? He didn't need any strength by any political alliance whatsoever because God was his strength. 
However, what we do know is as a result of that, the multiplication of his wives increased and concubines increased. And this was all something that so unnecessarily diminished him in spiritual strength. This is a wise correction from a mother. In Psalm 119, verse 9, that's very significant correctively. And how shall a young man keep his way pure or clean? By keeping it according to the word of God. And so there's a cleansing work in staying close to God by the scriptures that God has given and obeying them. The question that is being asked and the insight that she has relates to chastity, purity and sexuality. And so, though we do not know necessarily his response or reaction to this, if he is reflecting on it, it means he took it seriously. If he is hearing her presently, it means that there is a correction surgically. We know that that didn't really turn him around much, but that a later time in his life he would pen a book called Ecclesiastes, in which as a man he knew that his strength had been robbed by decisions that he made concerning having too many wives, too many girlfriends. And he was then able to encourage, even though one would say pathetically, the next generation of men, don't do this. I did it. I invested my entire life in pleasing myself. And actually, this continues to move down here in not only the questions that have been asked, but the insights that have been given. Nor your ways to that which destroy kings. You have to understand, son, there's a way in which a system operates carnally and powerfully that seems to be impressive, but its consequence is severe and destructive. Notice this in verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law, and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. So the other principle that is being worked out here would be both temperance, and that simply means that which is imposed as a discipline and moderation. Temperance on one strict definition means no touching of that which alters your mind. So we see this in culture that at spring break every year, there's a culture of youth that go literally to a place specific, and all they want is their mind altered. And what we would call an alcoholic frenzy, drinking as much beer and liquor as you can hold, and then you will not hold it, and you are out of your mind. You're out of your senses. As a result of that, there is a personal justice that is violated. Now, this is speaking of a justice that is meant corporately. You can't make decisions that are appropriate for the least, for the infirmed for those lacking 
but also you can't have justice for yourself. And that word has lately been a little bit skewed because we think that justice means, you know, that fist down, the sentence given. Justice actually implies something different. Its intention when you look at this scripture is that it's what's fair and reasonable. All of a sudden, in those kinds of things, there is fairness that will not prevail and reasonability that will not prevail. And the Lord is saying, through this remembrance or this verbal encounter, it's important that justice have in it the qualities of fairness because this exemplifies who I am. I'm faithful and I'm fair. I am reasonable. He would invite Isaiah in chapter 1, come, come with me and let's counsel, let's reason together. And so in this, Lemuel, you belong to God. And you know that from your mother's nurturing of you, instruction of you. She's tutored you from the time that you were brought forth from her womb, laid at her breast, diapered, very likely by the garments she tore from her own wardrobe to provide you with clean linen. Lemuel, listen to your mother. So both chastity and justice and mercy. It says that in this, the drinking, princes are not to be intoxicated, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing. In other words, let that be to someone who doesn't care about their life. They're careless with their life. They don't care about their life. And this is another interesting dilemma because to one degree, that person that would do such a thing is also the son or daughter of a mother that said, no, don't do that thing. That's, that's the tension that's created in life by those who choose to do that which is contrary to the counsel of a mother and those who choose to do what is complementary to the counsel of a mother. It's tensions very often between a mother and another mother saying, well, why is my son this way, and my son ran with your son, and your son's this way, and they don't even behave the same. We went to the same church, same Sunday school, same activities. What in the world is the difference now between our sons? And that's a time in which mothers who perhaps can say that need to get together, not at warfare with one another as to why one went this direction, the other went that direction. Because again, the scriptures cite itself that there's an age of accountability in which the choice of what that son or daughter does, it does not hinge on the negligence per se of a mother or even of a father. Why? Because we go back to the central theme, that child belongs to God. That is an act of disobedience to God himself. It's a personal affront from that child being able to choose, having the Spirit of God available, the scriptures that either they know about or in fact have memorized, and they're walking in willful disobedience. 
it's not on you. It is not on the mother that is raising her child to be excellent in the ways of the Lord. It is not on the mother whose son or daughter, contrary to how they were raised, chose to live a life that now is squandered. God is blessing both. And God ultimately will do the essential of what it takes for that child to be raised up. And sometimes it takes the full span of a man's life, a woman's life, to realize ultimately I've squandered the majority of it. But in my last breath, as my mother was responsible for the breath that I drew in carrying me in that womb and nurturing me through my childhood, though I knew better, chose errantly in my last breath, the last pen stroke to this paper, I will teach the next generation not to be foolish towards God. So when God apprehends a son or daughter that has gone wayward, when the word says from the mother's heart, you belong to God. God's got his eye on you. God will never forsake you, never leave you. You can run hard, but you will always find yourself in the presence of the Lord. You will not be abandoned until ultimately when you can't draw breath, you will have abandoned yourself to that choice. So it's to be a sobering word, but it's to be an encouraging word that God is partnering with the brokenhearted mother. Instill the hope that a son or daughter will return according to the pet name. Oh, Lemuel, you belong to God. Jedediah, Jedediah, you friend of God. Solomon, do you remember those years of being at peace with God? So it continues in this area with a point as well regarding the mercy of God. Verse 8, open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. And this simply means that there is going to be overwhelmingly compassion when no one else has it. The son, the daughter, nurtured by the mother of faith and in the faith, exercises in this beautiful area of mercy, which is Compassion, when others do not have mercy and will judge with severity, you will look upon that person. You will look upon your son and your daughter and you will have mercy and you will have taught them in that the principles by which they as well get to in the power and authority that they have to do the very same thing. You know, we've come up with a popular phrase called pass it on. God invented that, actually. He invented that. He did so 
by simply declaring himself as good. I'm good. The Lord is good. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is merciful. He proclaimed that to Moses when Moses was hid in the cleft of a rock. He said, I want to see your glory. Well, Moses, you can't see my glory. You cannot see my face. But I will reveal my glory by passing before you. I'm going to hide you and you'll see my back as I pass before you. And yet it's interesting because the scriptures tell us the Lord himself would say, but I, I, knew, I knew him face to face. Well, which is it? Was he hid that he might not perish? Or did he in fact see your face? And that's the mystery. I believe those that are protected by God, that they truly know his presence, just his passing by, are those that ultimately are able to see his face. And so one of the things that we see mothers doing is teaching their kids, hey, this is how you'll know the Lord's passing by. He'll put you here. He'll put you right here. And you'll have no doubt of his glory. Well, Mom, how do you know these things? Because I saw it. That's where he placed me. And he passed by. And it was glorious. And as I was raising you and your brothers and sisters, he passed by again. And I was able to see his face. How? In you. Really? Yeah. In you. Why? His name means belongs to God. When your child belongs to God because of a vow you made, because of the intimate awareness that you have of your son, your daughter being in your womb, everything that as of you, everything of your husband being transferred in that area of the microscopic, but being given to them in the prolific. In other words, this work that God's going to do prolifically through them that he had in mind from the very beginning. So mothers right now are to be really encouraged. I know you can look through Solomon's life and say, I'm discouraged. You just told me the guy was a failure. He could have done better. He could have done better. That is for certain. But the mother didn't fail. And Solomon did go to be with the Lord. And that's success. Any time that a son or daughter, even though a good majority of their life is squandered here, get to go to be with the Lord, success, mother, thank you for nurturing them. Because you truly and rightfully said to yourself, I have lent my child to the Lord. And the Lord reciprocates and says, Thanks, because I lent him to you. And the woman responds, Oh Lord, I give him back to you. And the Lord says, Thanks, I'll take your offering and I'll relieve you of the burden. I got it. I've got all of this under control. Why? Because the woman of God, whom we are talking about, who I believe I'm addressing, and some may say, no, that's not me. Yes, it is. Because God saw you differently than you see yourself. God knows you 
more intimately than a mother who birthed you. God has a precise understanding of even the choices you've made now that weren't intended by him. But the question is, what do you intend to do right now? Squander another day? Chosen counsel that has been given to you from times past? Or are you able to say, as the question is asked, what, my son, my daughter? What, son, daughter of my womb? What, son, daughter of my vows? The voice of your mother speaks. The voice of God through her speaks. And what is it? It's convicting. You can argue with it. It doesn't change the ministry of the woman of God who utilized in that, I believe, very quick season of nurturing all the gifts and all the talents, all of the essentials, to see that that child would prosper in the things of God, in the way of the Spirit. Psalm 127, closing there, says this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. You've been rewarded. You've been blessed. Children who doubt that, you have to argue scripture right now. And therefore be what God says it is you are. That's a means by which you bless the Lord. Or you can say, I will bless my mother in the name of the Lord by who he says that I am. I am what? I am a heritage. I am from the Lord. I am known by God. I am one who is beloved, at peace with God. I'm a minister of God's. I'm a gift to my mother on this day. And she is a favor from God to my father. It's a wonderful package that God has allowed us to see in his scriptures. The way that men are given authority by God, but that the authority of a father and mother continue to travel in that lineage, that progress, that, that prayerful intercession. And the responsibility is awesome, and we're not to uh, give up on it. Remember that biggest burden to be relieved of is the guilt of saying you failed because your faith right now would challenge you saying from the beginning your vows were heard by the Lord and you rightfully turned that child over to the Lord he she is in his hands as you are well done mothers well done and there are other children to raise in what may be an empty home who are they they may be your grandkids. Raise them up in the ways of the Lord. The same principles that 
were invested into your children, you get to invest into your children's children. Raise them up.